Warning, this episode contains graphic details involving dog mauling, death by dog mauling, and euthanized animals. This content may be sensitive to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Many of you who know me both on social media and in real life know that I am an animal lover. You've likely seen me share an obnoxious amount of pictures of my three dogs and two cats. We start pet threads on Facebook. We share funny videos of our animals doing silly things. My five monsters even have their own Facebook page. So yeah, they're basically famous. I take my three dogs to the park at least four times a week, sometimes twice a day. These are our babies. We even call them our fur babies. We call ourselves their mommies and daddies. Some of you may even be shocked to realize that I'm not only the mommy of five furballs, but I also have a two-legged human kid that calls me mom too. We started our collection of pets about three and a half years ago with my daughter wanting a puppy. A friend of hers had a pug and a chihuahua that mixed it up and had some puppies, so we ended up with Fred. Then about six months later, a girlfriend of mine found an abandoned puppy in her backyard one morning. And Fred, struggling with loneliness, I'm certain of it by the way he'd cry and whine every time we left, was in need of a companion. So we agreed to take the abandoned dog in if nobody claimed him. Thus, we ended up with Ricky. Yes, Fred and Ricky of I Love Lucy fame. A little less than a year later, we saw a sad, scared little, puggish-looking mix at the dog park. I guess we must have been staring at her pretty hard because the woman who had her approached us and asked us if we knew the dog. We did not, of course, but we told her we were admiring her because she was so adorable. She informed us that she had found her on the streets of North Long Beach, California, and needed to rehome her immediately as she herself was in between living situations and already had one dog that she could barely keep. So the next day, we picked up this lost little puppy. We put up found signs, posted on social media and on various websites, but to no avail. Nobody claimed her, so then we were three. We named her Rhoda, after the little girl who saved her and gave her to us. Then, in short order, along came kitty number one, Blue, found under a car, and kitty number two, Luna, found in a bush. Needless to say, we are maxed out on animals. There are no more vacancies at our place. These were to be my daughter's first pets, our first pets as a family. I explained to her that if we were going to have a pet, or pets as it turned out, that we were going to do things the right way. We were gonna make sure we fed them good foods and kept the table scraps to a minimum, make sure that if we do slide them some people food that it's safe for them to eat, make sure we exercise them, take them on walks, take them to the park regularly. We got them all spayed and neutered, they're licensed, and we make sure we keep up with their vaccinations, boosters, rabies, all that stuff. I'm fairly certain it would be accurate of me to say that I've kept better vaccine records for the animals than I did for my own human kid. I wanted there to be lessons for my daughter to learn. 
that the puppies and kittens were totally adorable when we first get them. But once we decide to make them ours, it's a commitment for their entire life. The novelty will not wear off, as these are now family members, not novelties. And we had to promise each other that we were going to do the things the right way for their entire lives. It was really important to me that my daughter, my husband, and myself fully understood what it meant to be a responsible pet owner. And that, my friends, is what today's episode of California Dreaming will be centered on. Responsible pet ownership and how things can go terribly wrong in the worst, deadliest way in the tale of the Presa Canario. Before I delve into this story, let me first say that I am by no means a dog expert, nor am I any kind of breed aficionado. My dogs are all mutts. I am not an enthusiast of or partial to any specific breed of dog. I am often hard-pressed to make small talk with other dog owners at the park who have championed bloodline American Kennel Club certified dogs about their fancy world-class canines. It's like way over my head. You're likely to find me gossiping or talking with others about the latest podcasts that have dropped as our mutts are off misbehaving or squirrel chasing. I'm familiar with the basic breeds, you know, the usual dogs you see at the park. Lots of Huskies, German Shepherds, Labradors, Boxers, and such on the big dog side. Then the Chihuahuas, Pugs, Poodles, Terriers, Frenchies, Yorkies, Pomeranians. All the yappy little dogs on the small dog side. There is also a group of dogs that I want to talk further about. A category of dogs known as bully breeds. Bully breeds is a broad classification of a variety of breeds characterized by having a muscular body, a broad, powerful head, and a short coat. Some of the breeds that fall under the umbrella of the bully breed would include Old English Bulldogs, English Bulldogs, Bull Terriers, Banter Bulldogs, American Staffordshire Terriers, American Pit Bull Terriers, American Bulldogs, Blue Blood Bulldogs, Boston Terriers, Bull Mastiffs, French Bulldogs, Staffordshire Bull Terriers, Valley Bulldogs, and Cane Corso Italianos. Depending on their specific breed, frame, and size, these dogs are alert, protective, intelligent, sturdy, muscular, agile, powerful, and with their owners, they are devoted and loving. These dogs, of course, require a great deal of owner responsibility. I have to say this, all dogs require a great deal of owner responsibility. But some breeds sometimes get a bad rap in the media as a result of sensationalized narratives that make their way into the headlines. We've heard the stories that make the news when a certain breed of dog bites a person and then communities start to call for bans on those breeds. Owners of these kinds of dogs come under fire. People become fearful of certain types of dogs when a simple solution for all of us would be to educate ourselves, especially those who own these breeds of dogs 
and to become advocates for them and demonstrate responsible ownership so those myths can be brushed aside. But no matter the case, there's likely to always be somewhat of a negative view of certain breeds, which is unfortunately brought about by irresponsible bully breed owners. We hear about them because of a careless moment or their lack of dedication to their animal caught up with them and their pet in turn bites a person or kills a neighbor's cat or small dog. Then sadly, the dog is the one who has to pay the price with their life, especially if they happen to attack a human being. The rules of ownership of a bully breed is no different than any other dog. It's just the yappy, ankle-biting chihuahua is not likely to be a threat to human life. Those who own dogs that have the potential to cause great harm or death to people must take responsibility as a dog owner to another level in order to keep themselves, others, and of course their dogs safe. And when it comes to a certain breed of dogs, you can't take too many precautions and doing so will ensure a long, happy life for your dog. The breed of dog that is the focus of today's episode is called a Perro de Presa Canario. I had never heard of this breed prior to 2001, the year the event of today's tale took place. Also known as the Canary Mastiff, it is a large dog breed that was originally bred for working livestock. The name of the breed means canary and catch dog in Spanish and is shortened to Presa Canario. It is the animal symbol of the island of Gran Canaria located in the Canary Islands off the coast of Spain and means great island of dogs. It is considered to be a very rare breed of dog, first introduced to the world outside of the Canary Islands in 1983 in an article written by anthropologist Dr. Carl Semensik in Dog World magazine, as well as in several books he wrote on the subject of rare breeds of dogs. The Presa Canario is large, with a thick, muscular body. The head is broad, massive, square, and powerful, brachiocephalic-shaped. I looked it up and brachiocephalic means having a relatively broad and short skull. A head of a proper shape with a good expression are some of the characteristics that are standard to the breed when determining best breed specimens. The ears are normally cropped both to create a more formidable expression and to prevent damage while working with cattle. If the ears are cropped, they stand erect. Some countries, ear cropping is banned, so the ears tend to be close-fitting to the head. They hang down in a pendant shape. The upper lip typically overhangs the lower lip, but not excessively. Males usually have a standard height of 23 to 26 inches, or 58 to 66 centimeters tall, and weigh anywhere between 100 to 145 pounds, or 45 to 65 kilograms. Females have a standard height of between 22 and 25 inches or 56 to 64 centimeters tall and weigh between 85 to 120 pounds or 39 to 55 kilograms. 
The Presa Canario is a complex, powerful dog and has specific needs and requirements if one is considering ownership of one. In communities and countries with breed bans, this dog is often among the breeds that are outlawed. We will talk a little bit more about breed-specific legislation a little bit later. According to VeetStreet.com, the Presa Canario is not an appropriate choice of breed for an inexperienced dog owner. First-time dog owners or those who have had softer breeds such as retrievers, spaniels, or toy breeds should most definitely do their research before choosing this breed as a pet. In the wrong hands, or in the hands of an inexperienced or irresponsible dog owner, just like any other breed, the Presa Canario can be a dangerous dog. This dog is large, powerful, intelligent, and headstrong. The breed standard is that it should be calm, attentive, self-confident, obedient, and docile with family members, yet suspicious of strangers. But these dogs do not come ready-made with these qualities. A Presa Canario needs an owner who can develop those characteristics by handling the dog with firmness and consistency, but without having to resort to using force or cruelty in training. Early and frequent socialization is essential. If these dogs are bred, they need to be raised in a home, around people, with children, lots of everyday sights, sounds, and experiences before they're sent off to their new homes. They've got to be exposed to as much as possible when it comes to the everyday life of your family so he or she will understand what normal life is like and nothing in the routine is a threat. However, it must be stated that no amount of socialization can guarantee that he or she will be friendly to all. The Presa Canario is foremost a guard dog. That is in their DNA, and they have a very high activity level and needs to be walked and exercised regularly. He or she should not be left to lie around and do nothing all day. Training needs to begin as early as possible while the dog is still a manageable size. He or she must also be trained to not chase and kill cats or small dogs that belong to neighbors. The Presa Canario has a very strong prey drive and is very territorial by nature. He or she also needs to be given the opportunity to spend equal amounts of time indoors as well as outdoors. It is easy to sit here and rattle off all of this to-do list when it comes to being a Presa Canario owner. I can't stress enough how important each of these training and socialization techniques is when it comes to this breed. As one couple found out the hard way, on January 26, 2001, not following these standards can lead to deadly consequences when you underestimate the need to properly train and socialize the Presa Canario. Diane Whipple was born January 21, 1968 in Princeton, New Jersey. She grew up and attended high school in Manhasset, New York, on Long Island. She was raised primarily by her grandparents and was a gifted athlete from a very young age. She was a two-time All-American lacrosse player in high school and later on at Penn State. 
She was twice a member of the U.S. Women's Lacrosse World Cup team. Diane eventually moved to San Francisco, California. She came within mere seconds for qualifying for the 1996 U.S. Olympic track and field team for the 800-meter run. She went on to become the lacrosse coach at St. Mary's College of California in Moraga, California. On the afternoon of Friday, January 26, 2001, Diane was returning to her apartment. She shared with her partner of seven years, Sharon Smith. Diane had stopped in at the local grocery store and was headed home for a quiet evening with Sharon. As Diane was making her way into her sixth-floor apartment, her neighbor was also about to enter into her apartment as well, up the hallway a few doors down. Suddenly, Diane was charged by her neighbor's dogs, two Presa Canarios, one male named Bane and one female named Hera both weighing in excess of 100 pounds each. Their owner was unable to gain control of the dogs as they barreled down the hallway and immediately lunged at Diane just as she was about to insert her keys into the keyhole and crack the door open. Arms filled with groceries, she was unable to make it through. She couldn't get to her apartment in time. She didn't make it to safety. A frantic 911 call came into dispatch at approximately 4 p.m. from a desperate neighbor. 911, we have two dogs rampaging out in the hall, up on the sixth floor, and I think they have their, you know, even their owner cannot control them. They are huge. Please hurry, I hear screaming, and I don't dare open the door. These dogs are ferocious. Police arrived on the scene very quickly. They were ordered to shoot the dogs if they were to encounter either one of them, as they were uncertain of the location of the dogs. They slowly advanced to the hallway of the sixth floor, where the caller had indicated the mauling had been taking place. When they arrived, even the most seasoned law enforcement officers were stunned by what they found at the scene. There was blood everywhere, all over the floor, all over the walls, clothing and groceries strewn about everywhere. At the end of the hallway lay Diane, crumpled on the ground, naked, bleeding, her body covered in more than 70 bite marks. Officers on the scene would later state that every inch of her body was covered in bite marks. Her arms, legs, torso, front and back, face and neck. Every piece of her clothing had been ripped from her body, save for a single sock. Remarkably, Diane was still conscious when police arrived, but she was unable to speak. Once Diane had been rushed to the hospital, police focused on the dogs. By now, they had been secured in their owner's apartment. Animal control officers found Bane in Noller's bathroom. The officers carefully cracked open the bathroom door and peeked inside. What they saw was a massive dog, 
most of his 123-pound frame centered in his chest, legs bulging, a wide, massive head. He had defecated all over the bathroom and was soaked in blood. Even his teeth were still red. Animal control officers carry tranquilizer guns that shoot darts potent enough to knock out a large dog, presumably. They fired three darts into Bane and waited 15 minutes. He remained standing. The two officers ended up hooking Bane with catch poles and walked him down to their van. About two hours after the attack, the media caught the footage of Bane being walked out of the apartment and into the animal control vehicle. You can see this footage of him being let out on YouTube. He was still agitated and foaming at the mouth. He was loaded into the van and immediately he was euthanized with 25 cc's of sodium pentobarbital. A few minutes later, Hera can be seen also on a catch pole led out of the apartment and loaded into the van. Hera was not euthanized immediately, however. She was kept alive as they were thinking that she might be needed for evidence later on if any criminal or civil litigation were to be levied against the owners. In mid-2001, a motion was filed on behalf of animal control officers who wanted Hera to be euthanized. She was not allowed out of her cage, and no one was allowed contact with her. The motion stated, The circumstances under which Hera is being held would be unfortunate for any dog. For a dog with a destruction order like Hera, who has no significant chance of ever being released, animal care and control should be permitted to destroy the dog as soon as possible. Even though a herring had declared Hera vicious and ordered her destroyed, she had been kept as evidence since Diane's mauling death. The owners repeatedly stated that Hera was not directly involved in the attack and were fighting the order to destroy the dog. It was later determined that the dog was in fact vicious. All the information that they needed to gather from Hera had been gathered and there was no point in keeping the dog around and prolonged the inevitable. Hera was euthanized one year after Diane's death in January of 2002. The only eyewitness to the attacks was one of the dog's owners, 45-year-old Marjorie Noller, an attorney. She was in her apartment with the dogs when police came to her door to investigate the dog attack. Although Noller had a few minor injuries on her hands, she was somewhat dazed and in a state of shock. She was also covered in blood. Paramedics were able to treat her at the scene as there were no injuries that required transport to the local hospital. Police then began questioning Noller about the incident. The interview was audio taped and is available online for you to listen to but I'll go through some of the details of her audio interview. Noller claims that her dogs were gentle and well-trained. And I know, I know, we're all collectively calling BS right now. Don't worry, it gets better. She goes on to say that the attack was a complete surprise 
and she doesn't exactly know how or what specifically happened, that she's never seen this kind of behavior from the dogs before ever. She told police at around 4 p.m. that she was returning from a walk with the dogs. As she opened her apartment door, she said that Hera, the female, was loose, which means the dog was not on her lead or under the control of her owner. Bane, the male, was on his leash. She was opening her door to let the dogs into the apartment, and at the same moment, her neighbor, Diane, was coming down the hallway carrying grocery bags. As Diane put her keys in to unlock her door, Hera unexpectedly became agitated. Noller claims that Hera made some kind of specific, high-pitched bark directed towards Diane, which suddenly alerted Bane and gained his attention towards Hera and what she was barking at. Bane had already been inside the apartment. With the door still ajar, he came back out the door and into the hallway. He looked in the direction of Hera's attention and focused on Diane at the end of the hallway, and as Noller states it, he reacted to her negatively. At that point, Noller still had a hold of his leash, but he immediately went wild and pulled away from her. She claims that she still had a hold of the leash, but was pulled off of her feet and dragged down the hallway. Noller stated that she was desperately trying to restrain the 123-pound Bane as he charged down the hall, but within a matter of seconds, the dog had closed in on Diane, standing only five foot three and weighing less than Bane at 110 pounds, who had been standing in front of her apartment door. She had almost made an end, but not quite. Photos from the scene that day show her keys still dangling from the lock to her apartment. Noller admitted that she could not hang on to Bane's leash any longer, and that's when he jumped on Diane. And by jumping up and placing his paws on either side of Diane's shoulders and pulling her down to the ground, this gives you an idea of how tall this dog is when it is standing on its hind legs. Noller screamed at Bane many times and continued to try to pull at his leash to get him off of Diane, but Bane would not back down from this attack, knocking both Diane and Noller to the ground. Noller says she tried to push Diane through her apartment door to safety and to get Bane off of her, but she could not overpower the dog by now deeply in the throes of his attack on Diane. Bane tore violently at Diane's face, neck, arms and torso. She struggled to escape, but was clearly no match for this out-of-control dog. Also, according to Noller, again, the only witness to this attack, the second dog, Hera, the 112-pound female, joined in on the attack, ripping at Diane's clothes. Noller said she then climbed on top of her neighbor, screaming at her to remain still. Noller states that every time Diane tried to move her body away from her body, that Bane renewed his attack on her. Then Noller described, in one horrifying moment, Bane made one last lunge at Diane's neck, 
slicing through her jugular artery, causing blood to spray all over Noller, all over the walls, and all over the carpet. According to Noller, now that Diane was laying motionless on the floor, Bane finally relented on his attack, and she was able to pull him away, leading him back to the apartment. The entire attack on Diane lasted more than 10 minutes. Three hours later, at San Francisco General Hospital, Diane's condition was critical. She had lost a dangerous amount of blood, and doctors knew that she wasn't going to make it through the night. Subsequent to the attack, Diane had been without a pulse for more than 22 minutes. Now on life support, it was determined that she was brain dead. Diane's partner, Sharon, had arrived home that afternoon after police had already been there investigating the scene. When she walked up and into the apartment complex, it quickly became apparent to her that something terrible had happened and based on the location of where all the evidence of the melee was, the blood, the groceries, the clothing, right outside her apartment, she knew that this something terrible had happened to Diane. She made her way to the hospital where Diane had been rushed. She was told Diane was alive, but there was nothing that could be done to save her life. Sharon was able to see Diane, battered and on life support. At 8.55 p.m. that same evening, Diane was pronounced dead. She was 33 years old. Within a few days, there was a public outcry over Diane's death. And soon, this tragic event, which at first seemed to be a terrible accident, escalated into a criminal investigation, raising the question, how responsible are people for the behavior of their animals? Let's talk a little bit about dog attacks for a moment. According to the Center for Disease Control, there are approximately 4.5 million dog bites that occur in the United States annually, and approximately 900,000 of them will become infected. With the population of the United States being approximately 325.8 million people as of 2017, that means a dog bites one out of every 72 people per year. 80% of dog bites cause no injury at all or are minor injuries that require no medical attention. In 2016, there were 41 dog bite-related fatalities in the United States. To break down those statistics a little bit more, pit bulls contributed to 22 of those deaths, Labradors contributed to three of them, and the remainder were attributed to Rottweilers, American Bulldogs, Belgian Malinois, Doberman Pinschers, German Shepherds, and other large mixed-breed dogs. 42% of dog bite-related deaths were children under the age of nine and 31% of those were under the age of six days old. The other 58% of deaths were adults over the age of 30. Despite the fact that between 2005 and 2016, 
Pit bulls and Rottweilers accounted for 76% of all fatal dog attacks. The average American had a 1 in 112,400 chance of dying from a dog attack. Putting that into perspective, we are more at risk of dying from a cataclysmic storm, which is 1 in 66,335 chance, a bee, wasp, or hornet sting, which is 1 in 63,225 chance, a discharge from a firearm, which is 1 in 6,905 chance, or choking on food, a 1 in 3,461 chance. So essentially, the attack that occurred on Diane and her subsequent death is a very, very rare thing to have happened as victims of fatal dog attacks are usually children or the elderly. She, being a fit young woman, attacked in the hallway of her own apartment was something unheard of, and the public very quickly took notice. Initially, the San Francisco police were handling Diane's case as an unfortunate, tragic accident. Noller, along with her husband, 59-year-old Robert Noel, also an attorney, openly spoke to the press and publicly stated that their dogs had never shown any signs of aggression in the past. The couple, married for 13 years, seemed to be the unlikely sort to find themselves involved in such a troubling incident as this fatal dog attack. They were two attorneys who worked out of their apartment they took a wide range of cases and had received awards for helping the homeless and the destitute. In recent years, they had defended both guards and inmates in the California state prison system. Friends of the couple would say that these were not the types of people that would go around hurting anyone or allow for anything like this to ever happen. They were the kind of people who wanted to help. Still, both Noller and Noel did not help themselves much with their cringeworthy explanations of how this incident occurred. As a matter of fact, in a rambling 18-page letter to the San Francisco District Attorney, Noel even went so far to suggest that Diane bore some of the responsibility for the attack. I know, I know, I couldn't believe it either when I read this. He suggested that Diane could have been wearing some pheromone-based perfume of some sort that could have triggered the response in the dogs, or that the possibility that she could have been menstruating at the time of the attack. Yeah, he suggested that. It gets worse. He even went as far as to suggest that he would speculate that Diane being as serious of an athlete as she was known to be, that she may have even been a user of steroids, which could have had a similar effect on the dogs, triggering this aggressive response. This was an assertion that authorities quickly dismissed as having absolutely no foundation whatsoever. What about the dogs? Let's talk about them a little bit more. Noller and Noel, at first, told police they had rescued the dogs from an owner who had mistreated them. This was hardly the whole story. The truth behind Bane and Hera 
as it would turn out, was much more complex than the couple had initially indicated to authorities and far more disturbing. It soon emerged that the true owners of Bain and Hera were two convicts, Paul Schneider, 38, and Dale Breches, 44, both of whom were serving life sentences without parole in California's maximum security prison, Pelican Bay. Both Schneider, convicted of robbery and attempted murder, and Breches, convicted of murder, as it turns out, were presumably, and still are if they're still alive, members of the white supremacist group, the Aryan Brotherhood. I didn't even bother to try and look to see if these two were still alive or not. What a waste of time. Anyway, some years back, Noller and Noel met Schneider while working on a prison case. Oddly, their relationship quickly grew into an improbable friendship, I guess, if you could describe it as that. In a letter written to authorities, Noel glosses over Schneider's crimes, describing him as a man of honor, integrity, and intelligence. However, as it was later determined, Noel had profited as Schneider's attorney as a result of money Schneider gained from a court judgment against the Department of Corrections. Also, he and Breches had devised a business venture to breed dogs for profit. Authorities speculated that the dogs were being sold as guard dogs for Mexican drug dealers and gangs. To get this dog breeding business going, Schneider solicited the help of 50-year-old Janet Coombs, a single mother living on a four-acre farm in Northern California, who visited with Schneider in prison regularly as, she claims, a charitable gesture. But I'm pretty sure she had some kind of romantic interest in Schneider. But anyways, although it was against prison regulations, Schneider said that he would put up the money to buy the Presa Canarios and that Coombs could pay him back as she sold the puppies. She claims that she figured he was a nice guy and they could make a little money on this venture. She later stated that she figured she was pretty naive. Yeah, okay. So in June of 1998, she picked up the first of the young dogs paid for by Schneider, Bane, and another Presa Canario named Isis. Yeah, Isis. Every two weeks, she was supposed to send Schneider pictures of the dogs and letters describing their life on the farm. One picture she sent showed Bane cuddling with a kitten, and this enraged Schneider, thinking she was turning Bane into a wuss, as he stated in his letter back to her. As Bane grew, he became difficult to control. Soon, no fence could hold him in and Coombs was forced to keep him chained up in the yard. In January of 1999, Schneider paid for two more Presa Canarios, Hera and Fury. Hera had a particularly nasty disposition, even killing a kitten that belonged to Coombs' daughter. Hera and Bane also killed sheep and chickens on Coombs' farm. In the fall of that year, Schneider believed that because Coombs was attempting to get the dogs to settle down with their aggression, he wanted them picked up immediately, 
so their behavior would not be tamed by her. The two ended up having a falling out, so he hired Noel and Noller, his attorneys, to retrieve the dogs for him, which they did, picking them up in the spring of 2000. Coombs claimed that she informed Noller and Noel that the animals were extremely vicious and had killed several of her livestock, but the couple, not to be deterred, took the dogs to live with them at their apartment by mid-2000. As I said earlier, police were initially calling Diane's death an accident, but the public, San Francisco specifically, was not having it. The outrage over Diane's death soon turned towards Noller and Noel, who, prior to their dog's attack, were nothing but seemingly exemplary San Franciscans, both on their third marriage, going on 13 years, devoted to one another, according to friends of the couple. However, as the investigation carried on into the couple's private lives, secret details began to emerge that were beyond anything anyone could have imagined. Starting with that inmate they had decided to help care for the dogs for, Schneider. They adopted the guy. A few months after Diane's death, as it turns out, this guy, their son, was adopted by them. He was supposedly one of the most feared leaders of the Aryan Brotherhood in Pelican Bay. He was continuing to rack up charges while behind bars, including racketeering and murders that he was allegedly orchestrating. He had also managed the dog breeding operation while in prison, called Dog of War Kennels, which was operating outside of the prison. He specialized in breeding the Presa Canarios, which had only been introduced in the United States from Spain a little more than a decade earlier. Bane was his prized stud, and puppies from his litter could easily sell for $2,000 or more at the time. That was a lot of money for that dog. It was odd that Bane and Hera ended up living with Noel and Noller, and even weirder were the details of the relationship between the three, Noel, Noller, and their so-called adopted son, Schneider. I'm not going to get into the details of what was discovered in regards to that. I find it disgusting and inappropriate to talk about here. But you can find more information about it online, and there's a book out there written by Aphrodite Jones called The Red Zone, which goes into details about the whole thing. Nothing that was emerging about the couple made any sense, and the bizarre statements they made in public didn't help either. The idea about the pheromones and the steroids or the menstruating, it all made the two look even worse. So by March of 2001, a grand jury was being convened, and Noller and Noel, they were indicted on charges. Noel was charged with second-degree murder and involuntary manslaughter, and Noel was charged with only involuntary manslaughter. Both were also charged with felony keeping of a mischievous dog. When Noller testified before the grand jury, she came off as bizarre and awkward as ever, 
as she wove this fantastical tale, one that would almost be considered moving if anyone actually bought what she was selling, of how she risked her life trying to save Diane's. But whatever sympathy she managed to gain quickly diminished when she said that Bane, and I quote, sniffed her, meaning Diane, her crotch like she was a bitch in heat. Yeah, she said that. To a grand jury, nonetheless. Noller and Noel were arrested and charged accordingly. They were unable to make bail, so they would be fighting their charges from behind bars. At trial, Noller recounted in her testimony that she had attempted to save Diane during the attack. But witnesses were called to testify that Noller and Noel both repeatedly refused to keep control of their dogs or make any attempts at training them properly. A professional dog walker testified that she once told Noel that he needed to muzzle his dogs, but he in turn told her to shut up and proceeded to yell expletives at her and call her offensive names. A friend of Noel's was called to testify that he had been bitten by Hera a year before the fatal attack on Diane and that Noel made no attempts to assist him or even apologize on behalf of his dog. If Noller and Noel were on trial for acting like first-class jerks, this case would have been relatively open and shut. However, prosecutors needed to prove that the couple had murderous intent when it came to Diane's death, and this would be the most difficult aspect for prosecutors. Murder charges in a dog attack had never been sought before in California. The prosecution attempted to portray the defendants as arrogant lawyers who carelessly kept what they described as time bombs as pets. They described at least 35 incidents that were known of involving Bain and Hera prior to Diane's mauling death, all of which they ignored. All of these incidents, the prosecutor said, should have put the defendants on notice that the Presa Canarios they were keeping in their small apartment were a menace. The story as to how Noller and Noel ended up on trial for their dogs mauling their neighbor to death came out at the trial as well, and was a tale just as bizarre and convoluted as anything you've heard thus far. I touched on it a little bit earlier, and there are probably a thousand other things I could get into when it comes to this, but I'm going to try to sum it up as simply as I possibly can. Noller and Noel, both attorneys, both had lived lives, both had previous marriages and subsequent divorces, somehow crossed paths in San Francisco in the mid-80s. In short order, they met, moved in, married, quit their respective practices to delve into pro bono work. In 1994, they encountered quite an interesting case, one that would change the trajectory of their careers and their lives forever. They took on a client named John Cox, a guard at Pelican Bay State Prison, who broke ranks with fellow corrections officers by testifying on behalf of prison inmates who had been brutalized. As a result, Cox started getting harassed by his co-workers, so he wanted to sue the California Department of Corrections. Noller and Noel eagerly took the opportunity to represent him. 
Seeing a wealth of work that could be had related to the Department of Corrections, the couple all but abandoned their commercial law practice to concentrate solely on representing prison guards and their grievances against the Department of Corrections. Despite their enthusiasm to their new venture, their record was not that great. They lost that harassment case for their first client, Cox, who would subsequently commit suicide by hanging himself. When analyzing the case, it was found that the couple made pedestrian mistakes in their legal procedures and put forth legal strategies that were pretty much unsupported conspiracy theories-based arguments. The couple were described by one Bay Area legal publication as being competent, but with a serious problem with conduct. It's not surprising as neither Noller nor Noel had very little, if any, experience in criminal law, and it was apparent that the two were in over their heads. The lowest point of their criminal law careers occurred in 1997 when Noller and Noel were the defense attorneys for a Pelican Bay guard who was being accused of colluding with the Aryan Brotherhood to have convicted child molesters set up for beatings and murders. Their defense strategy not only failed miserably, but when the guard was found guilty, one of the inmates that had been called as a witness was subsequently murdered in prison. As it turns out, Paul Schneider, the inmate I spoke of earlier, the original owner of Bain and Hera, he was among the witnesses that was called to testify in this case. This is where the lives of Noller, Noel and Schneider, and eventually Bain and Hera would cross paths. It was around this time that Schneider's desire to own and breed rare, ferocious dogs began to take shape. He had read some ads in the back pages of Dog Fancy and Dog World that featured an unusually fierce breed of dog called a Presa Canario, described as guardian dogs, man stoppers, and tough enough to take out pit bulls. They are holding or gripping dogs that were bred by the Spanish cattlemen of the 16th century to pin down bulls for slaughter. They were trained to clamp their jaws over the most vulnerable parts of the prey, such as the lips or the ears, and taking them down. American bred presses look similar to pit bulls, but are about twice as big and have been known to grow to as much as 160 pounds, or approximately 72 and a half kilograms. Many Pressa lines sold in the United States are labeled as junk dogs. They get mixed with pit bulls, Great Danes, or English Mastiffs, and a buyer might not always know what they're getting or how stable the dog will grow up to be. Schneider got the money he needed to get his dog breeding business started, and despite the fact that most sellers won't deal with prison inmates, there's always someone out there who's willing. Schneider found the now defunct Stygian Kennels, run by a guy named James Harris. This is who Schneider purchased Bain and Hera from. As would later be found out, Bain wasn't even a pure pressa, as Schneider had been told. He was a questionable mix of at least four different breeds, and sadly, as it would turn out, an incredibly unstable and deadly temperament. Running his business from prison, Schneider wasn't going to be able to research the dogs as much as he would have liked. 
But he had a source. He just needed a place to raise them. He tried reaching out to his family, but they all turned him down flat. He had them on Coombe's farm that we spoke about earlier, but that fell through, so enter his attorneys, Noller and Noel. Schneider wasn't too keen on the couple, but another Bay Area attorney had turned him down, so this was his last resort. He needed someone to raise the dogs for him. Maybe it was because of their dismal work as attorneys that they had agreed to do this for Snyder. Who knows? But for some reason, both Noller and Noel jumped at the chance to house these two prized dogs of Snyder's, Bane and Hera. When they went to get the dogs from Coombs, they threatened to sue her if she didn't turn them over. They spent their own money hiring an animal transport service. They showed up in person on March 31st, 2000 to pick up the dogs. There were at that time eight presses on the farm, four of them sired by Bane. And by the time the couple picked him up, Bane had been chained to a stake for a year. I want to take a moment and talk about chaining dogs. The act of permanently attaching a dog to a stationary object to keep it from jumping a fence or escaping a yard. I'm fairly certain that I do not have to tell any of you listening, as I'm convinced, based on what I see on social media, that 100% of podcast listeners and hosts alike are indeed animal lovers through and through. That chaining a dog is an extremely cruel and inhumane way to keep a dog. And if you are listening and you keep a dog chained in your yard for the majority of its life, then yes. I'm talking to you. You are cruel and inhumane, and you should very quickly find another way of keeping your dog from leaving your yard. Dogs are social animals who thrive on interaction. In the wild, canines live, eat, sleep, and hunt in packs. They are genetically wired to live in a group, so when we domesticate them, when we bring them into our homes to be a part of our family, they need to be allowed to live with the family, not chained up and left alone in the yard. A chained dog will suffer a tremendous amount of psychological damage. An otherwise contented, friendly dog will become neurotic, unhappy, and often aggressive. Their necks can become raw and covered with sores from tight collars, as well as the strain of trying to escape. Some chain dogs have been found to have collars embedded in their necks. They also often become tangled. They can't access their food and water or shelter. Under these conditions and given the right circumstances, these dogs can become very dangerous and will pose a threat to the safety of itself, other animals, and humans. This was Bane's life the year prior to living with Noller and Noel. There are a number of states that have statewide legislation banning chaining of animals. There are communities and states that have their own local bans, while others have time limits and certain conditions under which animals are not to be chained. You can find more information at www.unchainyourdog.org. Okay, so now back to this story. A couple of weeks before the couple went to the farm to pick up the dogs, they hired a local veterinarian to examine them. He gave the dogs a once-over, 
gave them some shots, and went home. But there was something about Bane that was very troubling to the doctor. After a few days, he decided to send Noller a letter to let her know about his concerns regarding Bane. He said, I would be professionally amiss if I did not mention the following so you can be prepared. These animals would be a liability in any household. How prophetic those words would be. Noller would later claim at trial that she didn't read the letter until long after receiving it. A friend of the couple, Keith Whitley, testified that he used to socialize regularly with them until they brought Bane and Hera to live at their apartment. He said all Noel would talk about was how big Bane's balls were. Their apartment, which had once been a charming place, was turned into a piss pot, according to his testimony. Noel could only bring the dogs out one at a time to introduce to visitors because he could not control the both of them at the same time. It also came out at trial that incidents with the dogs began almost immediately after they were brought into their home. Bane got into a fight with the dog at the beach four days after he arrived in San Francisco. In another incident, he almost bit off Noel's finger. Bane and Hera scared the hell out of people who were in their apartment building, as well as the neighborhood. One neighbor, who also lived on the sixth floor, was pinned against the wall one evening when Bane slipped out of their apartment when Noel partially opened the door. Other neighbors testified that Bane and Hera attacked at least three other local dogs, nearly killing one of them, a German shepherd. It also came out at trial that Noel was writing to Schneider almost on a daily basis, telling him the events of each day, as he called Bane and Hera the kids. On the 11th of January, 2001, Noel wrote a letter to Schneider that, towards the end, described an encounter between the dogs and a neighbor. The letter said, As soon as that elevator door opens at six, one of our new female neighbors, a timorous little mousy blonde who weighs less than Hera, is met by the dynamic duo exiting and almost had a coronary. That mousy blonde he was referring to was Diane. The mousy blonde that would die 15 days later in that very same hallway. Her partner, Sharon, would testify that one of the dogs had snapped at her two weeks earlier. Another friend of hers would testify that Diane told her that Noel was an asshole and that he better do something about those dogs. At trial, Noller testified that when they encountered Diane in the hallway, Diane was staring at Bane and that for no obvious reasons, Bane dragged her towards Diane. She insisted that she battled him the whole way. She said that while she struggled with Bane and Hera, who had come into the hallway as well, she says that Diane simply stood silently in front of her apartment. She said that her front door was open, but according to Noller, she didn't bother to go inside, even after Bane jumped up on the wall and stuck his head into her crotch. According to Noller, all Diane said was, your dog jumped on me. Noller insisted that she tried to push Diane into her apartment for her own good, but Diane resisted her, at which point Bane bit her on the throat and proceeded to rip her clothes apart. Noller claimed that for the duration of the attack, that she had put her life on the line. It was only dumb luck that 
Bane didn't kill her too, she says. Noller denied that Hera took part in the attack. However, Hera's coat was also found to have blood on it by animal control officers. Following the attack, Hera was being kept in custody by animal control who had her under observation. A kennel employee later would testify that he had observed multicolored fibers in Hera's stool, but unfortunately, nobody thought or wanted to collect this as evidence. A dog behaviorist testified that the shredding of Diane's clothing was a strong indication that one or both of the dogs had been trained to be hostile. He went on to say that dogs are trained to bite on rags as a technique that builds aggression. While the defendants claimed that the dogs weren't trained to be aggressive, police did recover a book from their apartment entitled Man Stopper, a training manual that teaches owners specific techniques, including ragging out to nurture viciousness in dogs. The jury all but rejected Noller's account of her dog's attack on Diane, as they found it difficult to believe that Diane would stand there stationary for such a long time while Bane rampaged through the apartment hallway. But there hadn't been any proof that Noller's story wasn't true. However, some information did come to light from Schneider's sister, Tammy, whom Noller called that evening after the dog attack and told her a different account of the story, one that was significantly different than the one Noller told to police, the grand jury, and at trial. Tammy said that Noller and Diane had an argument in the hallway before anything happened with the dogs. Noller told her that she had asked Diane to shut her door so she could take her dogs out into the hallway, and the lady was like, no, I'm not shutting my door. You. Of course, Noller denied that this was the way things transpired that afternoon. But if Tammy's story is true, then Noller's defense, that the attack was unexpected and took her by surprise, becomes very flimsy. I saw an excellent analogy comparing this dog attack to shooting a gun. From the perspective of the law, a powerful dog attack might be viewed as a weapon, not much different from a gun. In other words, if you were holding a gun and your neighbor was found shot to death, it's very difficult to prove that the shooting was accidental if it were to come out that you and your dead neighbor were having an argument right before your gun shot her. There is one thing that Noller testified to when speaking about the events of that afternoon in their apartment hallway. One thing that Noller offered, that when you hear it, you believe it, probably 100%. She was asked, what was the last thing Diane Whipple said to you? Noller whispers, help me. On March 22nd, 2002, the jury of seven men and five women found Marjorie Noller and Robert Noel guilty on all five charges, including the second-degree murder charge against Noller. As the court clerk read each guilty verdict, the relatives and friends of Diane cried and hugged one another. Noller fought back tears as she turned around and faced her elderly parents and... In a moment, I find ironic. Mouth the words, help me. She did not look at her husband, who remained stoic, 
had no reaction to the verdicts. Across the United States, there have been very few cases where a dog owner has been found guilty of murder after the animal killed somebody. Noller's second-degree murder conviction would be the first in the state of California. Following the conviction, the prosecutor who led the case said, 99% of people are responsible dog owners, but a very small number fail to heed warnings, and because of that, at least one woman is dead. Despite the fact the jury found Noller guilty of the second-degree murder charge, San Francisco Superior Court Judge James Warren overturned the conviction. He said that the evidence presented at trial did not support such a harsh, rare verdict. Although he granted a new trial for the second-degree murder charge, he did end up sentencing Noller to four years in prison for the lesser-included charge of involuntary manslaughter on July 15, 2002. Manslaughter and murder are exclusive, and a defendant cannot be convicted of both for killing the same person. Her husband, Noel, was also sentenced to four years for his convictions. Following the 2002 convictions, both Noller and Noel had their law licenses suspended by the State Bar of California. Noel was disbarred in February of 2007. Noller resigned from the bar. After spending two and a half years behind bars, Noel was granted early release on September 14, 2003, and served two years on parole. By early 2004, both Noller and Noel had served their terms for their manslaughter convictions, and Noller was released while waiting for the state's appeals on the overturned second-degree murder conviction. In May of 2004, the California State Appellate Court reversed the judge's grant of a new second-degree murder trial for Noller. The appellate court ruled that implied malice murder did not require knowledge of a high probability of death, but rather just a conscious disregard of serious bodily injury. The appellate court returned the case to the lower court to reconsider the defendant's motion for a new trial using the serious bodily injury standard for implied malice murder. Noller fired back once again and appealed the appellate court decision to the Supreme Court of California. I know this is really drawn out, but I promise there will be a conclusion. On June 1st, 2007, the California Supreme Court rejected the Court of Appeals decision and ruled that implied malice murder required proof that the defendant acted with a conscious disregard of the danger to human life. The Supreme Court held that the trial court standard for implied malice murder, which requires a high probability of death, was far too strict and that the appellate court standard, which required only serious bodily injury rather than a danger to human life, was too vague. The Supreme Court remanded the case to the trial court to reconsider whether to allow the second-degree murder conviction to stand following this analysis of the law. The San Francisco Superior Court reinstated the conviction for second-degree murder on September 22, 2008, and Noller was sentenced to 15 years to life. Of course, Noller once again appealed this decision, but on August 23, 2010, the First District Court of Appeal unanimously upheld Noller's conviction, 
finding that she acted with a conscious disregard for human life when her Presa Canario killed Diane. Subsequent to that, the California Supreme Court refused to even hear her appeal of that decision. And finally, in the most recent appeal in November of 2015, Noller petitioned the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit to overturn her second-degree murder conviction. In February of 2016, the Ninth Circuit upheld Noller's second-degree murder conviction once again. She is currently serving her sentence at Valley State Prison for Women in Chowchilla, California. Yes, you heard that right. Marjorie Noller is still sitting in prison to this day for Diane's death, which occurred more than 16 and a half years ago. I can only imagine that that woman is sitting there wondering if she had just been less of a jerk after Diane's death, if she and her husband weren't so nauseatingly unapologetic and exhibited such bizarre behavior, it's likely that the pair would have never spent any time in jail, as law enforcement was looking at this as a tragic accident. But with the brutality of Diane's mauling death, the couple attempting to lay blame upon the victim publicly the manner in which they seem to mourn the loss of their dogs more than the fact that their dogs took the life of another human being, not to mention the whole backstory as to how Bane and Hera came to be at the apartments, the prison connections, the Aryan Brotherhood involvement, the bizarre relationships between Noller, Noel, and Schneider. I was surprised, though, to learn that Noller was still in prison. I looked, and I found her in the California inmate locator, but I could not find a projected release date. So, if I do the math, a 15-year sentence handed down in late 2008, she's expected to serve 80% of that. By my estimates, she might be eligible for parole around late 2020. All that time, all these years, just for being a lousy f***tard. I can't think of anything more frustrating with this case than all of the things that could have been done to prevent such a tragedy from happening. There were so many warning signs that these dogs were ferocious and potentially dangerous to people and other animals. They had displayed numerous indicators of aggressive dogs. They had a history of biting people and killing animals. And as much as their caretakers want to deny it, it's pretty obvious what Bane and Harrow were born and bred for, to fight. I saw a cane corso at the dog park this week. It's the first time I had ever seen one before and it looked very similar to the Presa Canario that I had been researching all week long. So I had to ask about it. I got some pictures of him too. His name was Panther. I'll try to post them on social media if I can remember. I was asking his owner, a very slight young Asian kid who didn't exactly appear to me to be able to handle a dog of that size in case of an emergency, but the dog was still a puppy who was only six months old and only a hundred pounds. But anyway, I asked about the differences between his dog and a Presa Canario. Apparently, the Cane Corso is a natural breed of the Mastiff family 
whereas the Presicanario is a created breed that was added to the Mastiff family. Whichever dog is more aggressive depends on who you talk to. Sometimes I'm at the dog park and I hear a dog fight break out and I see owners struggle, sometimes tumble to the ground trying to regain control of their pet. And I sit there relatively safe from the melee on the small dog side and I just hope that nobody gets hurt. Wondering why people have dogs they can't physically control. And that's just what is at the heart of Diane's case. These people, middle-aged attorneys, had dogs that they could not handle. Dogs that had a history of aggression. Dogs that were bred for fighting. And I agree with all those courts. They had complete disregard for human life. And Diane sadly paid the price for that. I have no sympathy for Noller, still sweating in prison today, because I know by the time you're listening to this, it is going to soar to 108 degrees in Chowchilla all week long. I worry about the others at the park. I have small dogs, and sometimes they can be snappy too, but they're small, and I can take them. I would just be so sad if someone or some dog at the park were to be injured by another dog. And I'm sad over the loss of Diane. This could have so easily been avoided. I'm sad for her family and for her partner. Speaking of which, Diane's family did file a wrongful death lawsuit against Marjorie Noller and Robert Noel, as well as the owners of the apartment where all of this took place. As a matter of fact, Diane's death directly led to some changes in California legislation when it came to who could file for wrongful death lawsuits in the state. At the time, there wasn't any way Diane's partner, Sharon, could file the lawsuit because she was not eligible to as a domestic partner, and same-sex marriage hadn't been a thing in California until 2008, and even then it was on again, off again until 2013. Diane's death led to major changes in the law. In direct response to Diane's death and Sharon's petition to be allowed to file a wrongful death lawsuit, a San Francisco judge ruled in July of 2002 that Diane's partner could take her lawsuit to trial even though the couple weren't married. Superior Court Judge James Robertson agreed with Sharon's lawyer that California law has created an insurmountable barrier for her by not allowing same-sex couples to marry and thus precluding them from receiving benefits given to married couples. At the time, it was a truly groundbreaking decision that sent the message that same-sex relationships meant something, that they were real and entitled to be acknowledged and respected. The suit named Noller and Noel and the apartment owners as defendants. It was settled for an undisclosed amount in December of 2002. Sharon donated some of the proceeds from the settlement to athletic scholarships and foundations in Diane's honor. There's a website called the Diane Whipple Foundations. You can find more information about it and their mission at www.dianewhipplefoundation.org. At the end of this episode, after the thank yous and social media stuff and shout outs and music, 
I'm going to leave an extra short message addressing breed-specific legislation, so stick around for that if you'd like, and I'd love to hear your guys' opinions on the topic on the discussion page. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the Presa Canario. I've had so much wonderful feedback this week regarding the last episode about Christopher Dorner and his manifesto. You can join the discussion and see related pictures and information on the Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. I also want to give a huge shout out to my new Patreon supporter, Mary Virginia. Your support is truly appreciated, and you can definitely keep an eye on your mailbox for your perk. I also want to thank those who took the time to leave reviews on iTunes. TXO, Lana Lay, By B Blue, Ariel Jane from Murder Under the Midnight Sun, one of two of my favorite moms ever from Moms and Murder, Melissa, Kitty McTaco, Vicki Russell, Ty PH, and Desert's Edge. And if I called you out and you want a sticker, send me an email with mailing information and I'll send you some. CaliforniaPod at yahoo.com. I also need to thank those who left reviews for me on Facebook Stacy, Joanne, Erica, Becky, Christina, Louis, Jennifer, Abigail, Stephanie, Maja or Maha, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, Cheryl, Nia, Beth Michelle, Owen, and Heather. I do have one one star review on Facebook that I would like to apologize for because it is extremely offensive and rude, not only to myself, but anyone who enjoys California Dreaming as well as any true crime fans who tries their hand at hosting like myself. Other than that, it's been nothing but positivity and good vibes, and that's what counts. We are also excited to tell you that California Dreaming has joined the Orbital Jigsaw Network with some other podcasts that you might want to check out, like The Concession Stand, a weekly show where hosts Nick and Andy geek out over all things entertainment, movies, TV, video games, and more. Or... Super Nerds UK podcast, an irreverent look at pop culture with hosts Ben, Ian, Tim, and Simon, with celebrity interviews, in-depth features, quiz shows, and a large dose of nerdy humor, or Busted Wide Open, a weekly pro wrestling and WWE podcast with hosts Nick and Sir Ian Dangerous, who take you on a journey through the hottest news in sports entertainment, or Historium a podcast devoted to telling strange, obscure, or otherwise interesting stories from history. And of course, the Dirty Bits podcast, a weekly podcast hosted by Tawny Plattis, with her casual retellings of the sexy, scandalous, and salacious stories your history teacher likely left out of her lesson plan. We are so proud to be part of such an amazing group of podcasters. Check them out, if you have the chance, on the Orbital Jigsaw Network, at orbitaljigsaw.com. I also want to remind you about a campaign that I'm taking part in called Two Pods a Day. It aims to introduce podcast listeners to two independent podcasts every day for the month of August. We hope to give visibility to some of the great indie podcasts out there that you probably haven't heard of. 
two pods a day encourages you to listen more, listen indie. Check them out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, sweet dreams. I wanted to talk a minute about legislation. Typically, following a dog mauling event, the community puts forth efforts to enact strict, breed-specific laws. California currently has no bans on specific breeds. However, there are many municipalities that require sterilization of specific breeds of dogs. In 2013, Legislators attempted to enact bans on specific breeds, but it never came to fruition. The majority of Californians understand that breed-specific legislation is not the answer. The legislation not only targets specific breeds of dogs that are thought to be dangerous and makes ownership of these dogs illegal, but could also possibly require any shelter or stray dog that fits a certain type to be euthanized instead of placed in homes regardless of their temperament. Several cities and towns across the United States and Canada have adopted breed-specific measures, mainly targeting pit bull-type breeds. What ends up happening is the generalization of the way the dog looks causes dogs to be incorrectly classified as pit bulls and possibly euthanized without any evidence that they pose a threat. Responsible dog owners are forced to give up their dogs or move it seems that the money spent on enforcing restrictions and bans could better be spent on establishing and strictly enforcing licensing and leash laws and responding proactively to target owners of any dog that poses a risk to the communities, not just specific breeds of dogs, as it is a fact that any dog can be aggressive and people are more often bit by dogs that they know as opposed to dogs that they don't know. It's important to remember that a dog's individual history and behavior is more important than its breed. And as a community, it would behoove us to work on prevention, educating ourselves, teaching our children about proper interactions and behaviors with other dogs, and learning to recognize dangerous situations that could escalate quickly with aggressive dogs. It's my belief that these are the steps that we need to take along with the heavy consequences in the event, such as the case that we covered in today's episode. An overgeneralized bit of legislation is not really going to help us gear towards less dog bite incidents. Thank you again 